1: Ransomware becomes endemic in the healthcare sector. Cyber metaphors. We read a good one this morning. Does your cyber insurance indemnify you against state sponsored attacks? More guilty pleas in the ex eBayers cyber stalking case. US Cyber Command and others advise everyone not to see foreign election meddling where it isn't. David DeFore looks at the spookiest malware of 2020. Our guest is Travis LeBlanc from Cooley on the European Court invalidating the EU US privacy shield. And what do we make of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month as it recedes into our collective rear view mirror? From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, October thirtieth, twenty twenty. This week's warnings about hospitals and ransomware continue to move organizations to higher levels of alert and to be borne out in reported attacks. U.S. public and private organizations, CISA, the FBI, and the Department of Health and Human Services on the federal side, and FireEye's Mandiant unit on the private side, have warned that organizations in the healthcare and public health sector are under an increasing threat from ransomware, The strains deployed are usually Conti and especially Ryuk. The perpetrators are Russophone gangsters, not spies. These particular gangsters get even worse press than such gonifs usually attract. Brazen, Ars Technica calls them. Others say despicable, conscienceless, loathsome. You get the picture. It's clear why they've attracted so much deserved odium. Attacks on the availability of health care are hateful in the best of times. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, these aren't the best of times. It's equally clear why the hoods are interested in hospitals. Data availability and privacy are at a premium, and the healthcare sector is under unusual pressure to knuckle under extortion. They can't always shrug off a successful attack when patient safety and privacy are at stake. Security Affairs says the hospitals in New York and Vermont have been the latest riot victims. Both the Wyckoff Heights Medical Center in Brooklyn and the University of Vermont Health Network have disclosed that they've sustained and are recovering from ransomware attacks. They're not alone. Wired puts the number of ransomware attacks against hospitals in the dozens, and the Wall Street Journal quotes Charles Carmichael, chief technology officer at FireEye's Mandiant cybersecurity firm, as saying, quote, "...most threat actors, they're explicitly not looking to hit hospitals." This group, in particular, has explicitly stated that they're going to hit hospitals, and they've proven it. He adds, "This is the most significant cyber threat that I've seen in the United States in my career." While U.S. hospitals have been notably affected by cybercrime, it's not solely a U.S. problem. The Montreal Gazette reports that various targets in Quebec have been hit, including non-healthcare targets in the transportation and law enforcement sectors. Montreal's Jewish General Hospital has been hit with a cyber attack, the hospital's administrator says wasn't ransomware, but his conclusion was based on the fact that no extortion demand had yet been received. We've heard a lot of metaphors about cybersecurity over the years. There's the Cyber Pearl Harbor and the related Cyber 9-11. There's the herd immunity metaphor for control of computer viruses. There's Cyber Moonshot, beloved of industrial research and development. But here's one that strikes us as not bad and worth thinking about. Cloudflare's COO, Michelle Zaitlin, offers an interesting metaphor as she looks at the future of cybersecurity. It's moving toward a water treatment model, she told Business Insider's inaugural Tech Executive Roundtable. It would be mixing the metaphor to point out that this seems especially true given the widespread move to the cloud— but she does seem to be on to something. The Harvard Business Review reminds business leaders that cyber insurance policies may have war clauses that exclude coverage for state-sponsored attacks. Since companies and private organizations are often the victims of state-sponsored hacking, they would do well to examine their policies for appropriate coverage. It's long been said that only people who legally wear badges and carry guns, that is, law enforcement and the military, are really interested in attribution. This piece reminds us that others, notably underwriters, can be closely interested in attribution as well. Two more former eBayers took guilty pleas yesterday in a Massachusetts cyber-stalking case. A former senior manager of special operations for eBay's global security team and the former manager of eBay's Global Intelligence Center pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit cyber-stalking and conspiracy to tamper with witnesses. This brings the total of guilty pleas to five. Two other former eBayers in the eCommerce bites newsletter harassment case have yet to plead. Is there a downside to seeing too much foreign interference in these upcoming U.S. elections you may have heard about? Yes, various experts tell the Washington Post— the recent failed attempt by Iran to impersonate the Proud Boys in an evident attempt to discredit the campaign of President Trump by communicating threats to Democrat and other voters was an example of how tactics that seem to have been effective in 2016 have fallen flat in 2020. U.S. Cyber Command's election security lead, Brigadier General Joe Hartman, told The Post, My biggest concern is that we give a foreign adversary more credit than they're actually due, quote. He thinks that social media platforms in particular have grown more adept at recognizing, exposing, and taking down coordinated inauthenticity. General Hartman said, quote, Their platforms have been exposed. Social media companies have taken down their personas. In most cases, their personas have gained very little traction. End quote. And finally, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is winding down this weekend in the United States. Did it have any effect? ESG's John Oltzik has an op-ed in CSO in which he laments the limited reach of the observance. He sees it as having traction mostly in universities and inside the Beltway, and wishes for more public service programs to get people generally to pay attention. His recommendations surely place him on the side of the angels. Among other things, he calls for a visible public service campaign like the Forest Service's Smokey the Bear, or kindergarten through 12th grade education in cyber, and greater cybersecurity career awareness. We don't know much about this Smokey the Bear. Sounds like he might work for Moscow. But maybe there's just too much competition for mindshare among the observances. We consulted our public awareness desk, and they inform us that October has also been the month during which we've been asked to observe... Eye Injury Prevention Month, Healthy Lung Month, Home Eye Safety Month, Filipino American History Month, Italian American Heritage and Culture Month, Polish American Heritage Month, and National Pizza Month. The individual days are too many to enumerate here, but one of them just this week was Plush Animal Lovers' Day, celebrated this past Wednesday. So let's be realistic, friends. We're as into InfoSec as anyone, but how can cyber compete with pizza and Beanie Babies? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. My guest today is Travis LeBlanc from law firm Cooley LLC. He's a member of Cooley's litigation department leadership team and vice chair of the firm's cyber data and privacy practice. He had the honor of being selected by the U.S. Department of Commerce and the European Commission as an arbitrator for the EU-U.S. Privacy Shield framework in 2017 and was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate to the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in 2019. We reached out to Travis LeBlanc for his insights on the European Court's recent invalidation of the EU-US Privacy Shield.
0: There was, uh, prior to 2015 or so, a bilateral agreement between the United States and Europe that permitted the transfer of personal data about Europeans across the Atlantic to the United States. Um, safe Harbor. Was the framework that the United States had negotiated with Europe for a determination of adequacy in 2015 or so? There was a decision out of the European Court of Justice, Schrems, now known as Schrems One. Uh, The case was brought by Max Schrems, who's an uh, Austrian uh, privacy uh, activist. It was brought against Facebook and was challenging. Facebook's transfer of data about Europeans to the United States and argued uh, largely in part that the safe harbor framework was not an adequate protection under European law because the national security programs and activities of the United States government would require Facebook and any other company in the United States to permit access, to either permit it or to not have the ability to prevent access to uh, access by the United States government to the personal data of Europeans. In twenty, you know, fifteen, uh, the ECJ says that uh, the protections uh, due to the national security um, activities of the United States government were not adequate. Many of these activities had been exposed by Edward Snowden, and that is. Uh, what became the basis of the lawsuit and much of the decision. Shortly after that decision came down, the United States and uh, the European Commission went back to the table to negotiate a new agreement uh, that would permit the transfer of personal data about Europeans to the United States. That new agreement was called Privacy Shield.
1: And so what are the main sticking points here? What's, what's keeping us from, from coming up with uh, something that everyone can agree on?
0: Well, you know, by and large, the main sticking points are not the activities of the, you know, 5,000 plus companies that relied upon Privacy Shield. By and large, the concerns of the uh, European Commission, I mean, of the European Court of Justice are that there isn't a, you know, a, a due process right for Europeans to challenge the exercise of the national security authorities of the United States government, that there isn't a way to that that some of the authorities uh, exceed the privacy right the privacy rights as they see it of of Europeans in particular. It really does go to national security, and you know the challenge after Safe Harbor was that the Privacy Shield framework did not come into existence along with substantial modifications to the uh, intelligence authorities of the United States government. And Hmm. so, you know, part of the negotiation will certainly be around, you know, what additional insurances the U.S. government can give uh, as to the, you know, transparency and the limits of the authorities of the United States intelligence community. But I do suspect that without changes to those authorities, meaning changes by law, it's going to be quite difficult to get the ECJ on board.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, getting back to the privacy shield issue, how do you suspect this is going to play out? What do you see as some of the possible resolutions here?
0: The Europeans and the Americans are already negotiating. Um, We know that they've been quite transparent about the existence of the negotiations. Um, You know, we've seen an effort by the US Department of Commerce to try and keep the Privacy Shield framework at least nominally um, in existence. For example, you know, the Department of Commerce has announced that it's going to continue to process applications to join Privacy Shield. I personally am perplexed uh, by that decision because, you know, the European Court of Justice and the data protection authorities over in Europe have made quite clear that they don't view it, the privacy shield as a valid framework. And so, you know, it's not clear to me why the Department of Commerce would want to keep that in play. But my best guess is that uh, in the negotiations, the United States would seek to use the use the privacy shield framework as essentially a model for or a basis for whatever comes, you know, next. I think the challenges that we really face right now at least on the American side what we have to do is give the Europeans the comfort that there is sufficient transparency and oversight of the intelligence community in the United States that they do not have to be concerned, you know, about the NSA for example, you know, breaking into Facebook Uh, That's going to be a challenge. The United States did a lot in the negotiations around Privacy Shield to try to assuage Europe of these concerns. And so I think the challenge we're going to face is, you know, identifying who in the intelligence community in the United States is going to go to the table uh, with the Europeans and whether we will need to, you know, make any changes to the, you know, authorities of the ombudsman. Person, the authorities of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. So there's a lot on the table, and it is apparent that the Department of Commerce alone won't be able to make all the assurances that are necessary, but that the intelligence community, or at least some component of it, will have to be at the table as well as it was in the negotiations uh, after Safe Harbor and that put in place privacy shield. That's
1: Travis LeBlanc from Cooley. You can hear our full interview over on the Caveat Podcast, and it's also available in our interview selects as part of CyberWire Pro. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the vice president of engineering at Webroot. Uh, David, always great to have you back. Um, You know, we are not far off from Halloween uh, and uh, tied into that, uh, you sent over a list of uh, some
2: spooky trends that you've been tracking. What sort of things are on your radar right now? Uh, David, as always, great being here. And, you know, uh, the, the the marketing folks, the PR folks, they wanted me to say spookiest. But to me, a lot of this is terrifying. <laughs> um, so so, so okay. to, to be clear, you know, we're, we're talking about cyber threats. And, you know, we continue to see huge uptick in, in threats around uh, COVID phishing attacks, um, uh, attacks that are around uh, stimulus checks and people trying to steal your bank account information. So I think that's all top of mind. People are aware of that, but we do need to, you know, stay on top of the fact that those are coming at us, even though we may know it, it's happening. So just stay aware of that. But, you know, that's kind of the general spooky, but but we got some real fun ones here, David, if you're, if you're hmm. going to let me run in with this. Yeah, let's go. So to me the most terrifying statistic i can throw out there is 5 years ago 6 years ago we'd see a ransomware attack and it was your aunt judy whose you know computer got locked up and they wanted $200 to unlock you know her selfies right i mean you can right. remember those days right david yeah yeah well now we're seeing the average ransomware payment north of $175,000 they're no longer going for Aunt Judy's computer anymore. The real terror here is municipalities, universities, medical facilities. This has really turned into big, big business. And they, they don't care about your Aunt Judy's computer anymore. They really care about these mid-sized institutions that can can afford to pay $200,000 because it's cheaper than trying to restore all their computers.
1: Yeah, well, take us through some of the, some of the threats that you're tracking here.
2: Uh, so, some of the uh, biggest ones we're seeing now, um, Emotet. That's a that's a botnet. Uh, it's we're seeing continuous growth. Um, They're super effective. Um, uh, through emails and things like that. You, you know, you're not going to get an email that says, I'm Emotet, uh, click here uh, to be infected. <laughs> uh, it'd be nice. Um, I would probably, that would work on me because I would want to see what happens, but but most people right, are going yeah. <laughs> to not pay attention to that. But that, we're seeing an uptick there. Um, I always spell, pronounce this one wrong, so you're going to bear with me. Roy, um, is I say, but who knows? Well, you're probably right. We're gonna go with you because <laughs> this is your show. Um, okay. you know, it's growing as well. It's a fairly new one, but we're seeing it grow in in, in the ability to uh, to infect machines um, as a, as a ransomware threat, lock those computers down. Um, Phobos is always a great one. and and the big thing about Phobos, um, that it is actually scary with people working from home is it takes advantage of RDP. Uh, um, uh, vulnerabilities, RDP being uh, what a lot of people use to remote into their offices and do work on machines in an office. So obviously, mm. people working from home more, if you're using that functionality, uh, I mean, RDP is always being attacked, because there are always exploits being found in it, you've always got to make sure you're being patched. So huge uptick there. And you know, mobile threat jokers out there, it's it's kind of, you know, just uh, trying to uh, steal information and, and it's, we got to throw a mobile app in there once in a while. I got to admit though, the mobile, uh, providers do a pretty good job. Uh, uh, Google with Android and Apple with iOS protecting mobile devices, but we do see from time to time, something pop up.
1: Do you suspect we're going to see a continued shift in that direction or is it the, that the, the, the opportunities are so rich on the desktop machines that there's no reason to go away from them?
2: well i think it, just like the the ransomware example if somebody can figure out uh, a a type of threat on a mobile device that makes them uh, a couple hundred bucks now but they can foresee a future where they have a greater roi and I, and i don't mean to be funny i mean this isn't the the kids hacking anymore. This is big business. The the mm-hmm. cyber criminals are in. So so the problem with a mobile attack is what what's your long term ability to make money. Um and and so yes, I think the possibility exists and we shouldn't ignore it. I still think though that there's so much money to be made in ransomware and and, and attacking uh, small to medium sized businesses and getting real money out of them. That that's going to be the focus for the for the foreseeable future.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, David DeFore, thanks for joining us.
2: Great being here, David.
1: And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. That's the best tasting pickle I ever heard. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. Be sure to check out Research Saturday and my conversation with John DiMaggio from Symantec. We're speaking about APT41 indictments. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.